everybody, and welcome to Tour Guide Tell All, where your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you a little bit of the scandalous and darker side of American history. We are so happy to have you here. It's April, it's spring, uh, and we have some really good topics this month. But before we jump into this week's topic, as a reminder, we want to say thank you to all of our wonderful patrons, the people who make this podcast happen. We could not do it without you. Truly, you actually literally keep the lights on and the tech running, and we really, really appreciate it. If you are not a patron, we're still running our patron promotion. We have a patron goal. We're trying to reach. We're really close, and we want to reach it because if we reach that goal, we're going to do a whole bonus series of episodes on first ladies, and our patrons will get to vote to decide which first ladies we talk about. And we're going to dive deep into their lives, into the scandals, into the stuff you thought you knew but didn't, it's going to be great. So um, take a look at our Patreon page. It's linked in our show notes and on all of our social media. For as little as $3 a month, you can be a part of this special series and you can help us keep doing what we're doing. So thank you guys if you're a patron. If you're not, check it out. But either way, we're just glad you're here. As always, I'm Becca. I'm Rebecca. And together we're the The Rebecca's. Someday I want to record video of what we do to try to make the Rebecca's work. (laughs) No, no one needs to see that. (laughs) So I am really, really excited because uh, Rebecca proposed a topic that we have definitely touched on in other episodes. If you listened to last week, you know we're kind of turning our attention away from individuals, trying to talk about some bigger scale events for the next few weeks. And we've definitely touched on this, but we haven't really talked about it just kind of from a pure history perspective, kind of gone micro on it. We're going to go a little more macro. Uh, We're going to be talking about the First World War, the Great War, the war to end all wars, World War One, which I think is shamefully undertaught and covered. And even as a tour guide, as much as I try to talk about World War One, it's so easy to sort of skip it or ignore it or it gets overshadowed. So I'm excited because not only are we going to talk about the war, but we're going to talk about something that's happening in D.C. that's going to help us, I think, better memorialize the World War One memorial. So I'm really excited. Rebecca, how do you feel about talking about World War One? Well, you know, um, we're just going to, I feel like this is a topic that scholars spend their whole lives studying and we're going to do it in like 45 minutes because we're just that good. No, 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 just kidding. Um, there are like thousands of pods we could do about World War One, and we will definitely come back to this because there's a lot of interesting things and characters and people we want to talk about later, but we're going to kind of do like a 35,000 foot view uh, of the First World War. But the real reason we wanted to talk about it specifically right now is because we are dedicating literally this week, as you're listening to this, we are dedicating a World War One memorial, a national memorial in Washington, D.C. It has been literally a century in the making. <laughs> and uh, we're finally going to get uh, to dedicate it, even in these pandemic times, it's going to be kind of a socially distant memorial dedication. We'll put the link um, in the show notes because even if you're local, it's invite only. It's a very small number of people in person, but they're going to stream everything and there's going to be a virtual element. So everybody can participate, but it won't be the usual big fanfare we would typically have for a memorial being dedicated. So I thought that we could talk a little about the memorial. What takes so long to have the memorial? And just a little bit, sort of an overview of World War One, kind of the U.S. experience. Imagine this is our intro to World War One episode, and you, you've heard us touch on it a little bit. This is like our intro, and imagine that we're going to do probably twenty more episodes over the next few years on various World War One topics. Sure, 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 sure. Uh, but the memorial 
is location wise, it is east of the White House in a park that is formerly known as Pershing Park, basically off of 15th Street by Pennsylvania Avenue. And Pershing Park, if you know anything about World War I, the name Pershing should ring a big bell. He was the general of the armies. All of our troops, uh, men in arms, were under his command during the First World War. And Pershing is 100% someone we were going to do a pod on because he's a fascinating guy. And he's buried at Arlington National Cemetery, our favorite place. And Pershing has largely been forgotten. He gets overshadowed sort of later in the century by Eisenhower and MacArthur. But he was extraordinarily popular in the wake of the First World War, so much so that they decided to have a memorial to him sort of east of the White House in the spot that it's in. Uh, But it doesn't really get dedicated until late 1981. And if you're counting, 1981 is many years after the First World War. So that should give you a clue about what happened to the First World War Memorial, the National Memorial. Things take a long time. And let me just jump in and say Pershing Park is developed really as a memorial to Pershing, but also as essentially just a public park. This was part of a beautification of downtown D.C., of sort of revitalizing Pennsylvania Avenue in the second half of the 20th century. So even the park itself is a memorial to him, but it's also designed to was designed to really be a public space. So in many ways, you could have gone to the pool that was there or the ice rink that was there or gone and enjoyed the shade while you're eating your lunch and not even really know you were in a memorial. And I think a lot of people who work downtown and spend time downtown were like, oh yeah, there's a statue of that guy, but I'm mostly here to take advantage of of the ice skating rink and the concession stand. So it was already kind of very different from the way we sort of honored other individuals on the National Mall. So it's just, it was already kind of unusual And now it's even more unusual because it fell into such terrible disrepair. All the amusement part of it fell away. There was some real mismanagement by the National Park Service's contractors. The National Park Service, of course, way over budget or under budgeted and stretched very thin. Pershing Park doesn't become much of a priority. And so they take this sad, ignored spot and they're like, eventually, this is where we're going to put a memorial. And I will say that it's a very odd process to get this here because it had been 20-year struggle to get this memorial done. There had been a lot of ins and outs that I'm sure Rebecca will mention in a moment. But I want to mention that just for this site selection, they snuck it into a military budget in 2015 and basically said, this memorial is going to be in Pershing Park. And because he served in the military, this works in a military budget. So they basically bypassed the entire normal site selection process. It's a really convoluted process. And I kind of forgot how like insane this whole idea was. Like there's an idea for a National World War I memorial basically right after World War I and it doesn't happen. And then there's the National World War I Museum in Missouri. And so somehow the Senator at the time, Senator Bond from Missouri gets kind of mixed up in creating a National World War I memorial that's going to be in Missouri, which didn't happen. Uh, and it goes through several different iterations. It's really the more modern iteration is picked up after the dedication, I think, of the World War II Memorial. And so I think in, feel like in reaction to that. So it's really going to gain steam in like 2007, 2008. And what really sort of propels this is the last remaining American World War I veteran, Lieutenant Frank Buckles, who at that time was 107 Let's just pause on that for a minute. And he's really going to advocate for this. In fact, he testifies in front of Congress at 108 years old, which is amazing. 
And it takes a while because Congress is Congress. And the idea originally actually was it's going to move to D.C. at some point. We have three local World War I memorials scattered throughout the National Mall and sort of the environs. And there to the local Washingtonians, there were three regiments of troops from the district that were sent to fight in the First World War. And so the idea is we're going to take one of them and adapt it into a National World War I memorial. And that has traction for a little while. And then they decide, no, we're not going to do that. Our delegate here, Eleanor Holmes Norton, uh, says, no, you know what? I don't really love this idea. This is for the sacrifice of our boys. There's nothing on the National Mall for Washington, D.C. Like it's in Washington. There's nothing that memorializes them. And you wouldn't just march to some town and say, we're taking over your local memorial and making it the national one. You wouldn't do that in Peoria or, you know, Sacramento or some other place. Right. And I think she had a really good point. Like, this is our memorial to the sacrifice of our boys. So we deserve it. That we also paid for. And it was paid for by D.C. residents, not the federal government. Right, right, right. And so to turn this over into a national memorial is not fair. And then it stalls for a little while longer. And eventually there's a separate site and then another site. And it just, it doesn't really get resolved until like 2014, 2013, 2014. And somebody comes up with a great idea to loop it in with this Pershing Memorial, which is near the White House. And the Pershing Memorial, as Becca mentioned, it really kind of gets a sad state of affairs for a while. And this is literally like a block away from the White House compound. This whole area should be nicer. There's a nice fancy hotel behind it with a lot of history. And somebody gets the idea that we should take this Pershing Park, keep the Pershing Memorial, and adapt it to be sort of a grander, broader World War I memorial. And that seems to make everybody really happy. Until they start submitting designs. Here's the thing about designing memorials. We talk about this in our Eisenhower episode. And if you haven't listened to the Eisenhower Memorial episode, it gives you, I think, a good context of like how many stakeholders there are in a project like this. Because you have things like the United States Commission for Fine Arts, which we mentioned in last week's episode. You have the group, the foundation that's raising money. You have members of Congress. And then you have other groups architecture groups and groups like uh, Washington's oldest residents and all these sort of heritage groups that choose to weigh in or choose to make public complaints against this memorial. So it seems like the World War I memorial is gaining steam and then these designs are submitted and people in the city aren't happy because it's taking away a lot of what would be the park space. Memorial people aren't happy. They think it's too modern or too weird. You've got a whole group that's pushing for it to be more neoclassical. You have people who are saying these architects don't understand what we're trying to do. Um, they have to work with the existing space. The space has been considered a historic preservation space, so there's limitations to what they can do. It's really kind of nuts. And this was all supposed to be done in time for the centennial of the end of World War One, and they still hadn't finalized the design. The other thing you would think, I thought at the time, that this would be a little bit even easier process because there are no living veterans. Frank Buckles, the last remaining American World War One veteran, who is buried at Arlington, dies in 2011 at 110 years old. Again, amazing. So there's no living memory of, there's living memory of it from like other people, but there's no veterans who still are alive that fought in this. So there's no, like nobody has that kind of skin in the game the way they did when they made the Korean Vietnam and the World War II memorial. So I thought that would make this process easier. I was wrong. (laughs) It 
did not. It was a whole big cluster. They, like Becca mentioned, they're eventually going to shoehorn this in with a, like the military budget and it is a whole mess. And then they set this ambitious timeline of, well, we're going to get the design approved quickly. We're going to do it. Then, of course, there's a lot of disagreement about the design. There's a lot of people, both who are actual stakeholders in the project and people who are just citizens or groups who make a lot of press noise about it. Uh, so we finally get a design going and they're supposed to break ground. And then like typical government projects, that gets delayed. We were supposed to be slated to be completed 2020. Then we have a pandemic. So then it's like, okay. We're opening it this month. This month, it's going to be dedicated. And the impression you get if you read the press coverage is that, like, it's going to be open and done. But friends, I have a little secret for you, something I learned, which is it's being dedicated and it's being promoted as it will be open, but it actually won't be finished. It's going to be missing the most important sculptural element that is not slated to be done till 2023 or 2024. It's really amazing. I didn't know that either. We might as well just wait for the 110th anniversary of this point. I'm telling you what. Like, I thought, okay, they're dedicating it. It must be done. But no, it is not done. But I walk by and I go, I don't see anything new. I see landscaping happening, but I did not see any new elements going in. But now I understand why they're not ready. And they've got this whole, like, there was a pool there for a while. And then it was an ice skating rink, which, honestly, I'm really sad they got rid of. And now that's going to be a pool again with meaning and there's all kinds of different design elements to it but that's not really like a huge lift as far as creating a memorial they're not doing that much to the space particularly so I thought like this isn't that big of a deal but no no no, they've got statues that are coming in like two and a half years so keep in mind that if you do watch this dedication ceremony or if you come to Washington, D.C. this summer and you're like, I really want to see this memorial, you're not going to be seeing it as completed. And the most compelling element, which is going to be this sort of 60 foot long, one and a half times life size relief that's going to give you a visual of the war and it's going to be reflected in the water. It's the element I'm most excited to see in person. That's coming in like two to three years, sadly. And I do appreciate to an extent that there isn't a lot to this memorial necessarily, that they wanted to keep an aspect of a public space, a park. I think sometimes with memorials, we can be too caught up in having this sort of designated space of reverence and we lose a human connection. And I think having this be a place where people can reflect, can commune is helpful. But also I think they're doing a very hard sell of this memorial being a finished memorial when it will not be. I also think that this is where not having the living veterans sort of aids this process because you don't have, you don't have veterans groups that are upset. They're not a voice anymore. They're, they're no longer with us. And of course you want to honor their memory, but the ideology that they fought for, the sort of the politics behind it doesn't matter as much anymore. And so there's not that element to the design feature. They don't have to like, obsess over sort of every little element of it the way that they did with the World War II Memorial, the Vietnam Memorial. It's not going to be, the design is controversial, but the like individual elements of remembrance and sort of memorializing them is not. I am very glad though, and I will say that, and I think this will ease us into some of what we're going to talk about as we continue on, but World War I gets such the short end of the stick and it gets, you know, I think I said this before, but really under-discussed, under-covered, under-taught. So there's something to be said for having anything 
in this major thoroughfare, Pennsylvania Avenue, I mean, people are walking by every day to go to work. People are going by all the time to go to the White House. It's our Main Street, USA, essentially. And so to have something visual representative of World War I, I do think is really significant. Uh, and I'm really excited to have that contextualized a little bit. I'm excited to be able to talk about it on tours mm -hmm. because it's something that we don't talk as much about. And it's something that in America is not taught. I mean, where it's taught, obviously, like it's part of our history, but it's sort of rushed through. I would say unless you take, you know, unless you're at the college level, the collegiate level, and you're taking some sort of intensive seminar, you're going, you're going a little deeper into European history. But most Americanists get very little of World War I, I would say. And certainly in the middle school, high school era, you get very little. And it does get brushed over because World War II looms so large in the U.S., kind of memory. I also feel like, and as I was thinking about this, conceptualizing this pot in my head, like there's two ways that Americans react to World War One, and both of them are wrong. Like the first one is that it's kind of like the bastard stepchild. It's like the stepping stone on the way to the other war, the bigger war. That gives it short shrift and isn't fair. But the other way that Americans taught about are taught about the war is that we just come in and kick butt. The Europeans kind of faff around for a while and can't figure it out. And then we came in and like took care of business. And that was that. Both of them are not correct, as is the other thing that people get really, I think, upset about World War One and incorrectly is that it inevitably led to the Second World War. That's also not true. We have a very hard time, for whatever reason, seeing World War One as its own conflict. It's more like lead into the bigger conflict, which I think is also unfair. So I wanted to just kind of break a little of those three things down just a little bit and then... I thought we could talk maybe a little bit about Wilson and I'll try to say nice things about how we got into the war. And that was my plan. <laughs> and I, yeah, and I, I hope I would like to touch a little bit on to where World War I influences and tentacles will go because we're coming up on a year of this pod or we'll be past by the time this airs a year of this podcast. And we have tangent tangentially. Um, I'm terrible with pronouncing that word. We have in bits really touched on World War One. So um, I think as we get towards the end too, we'll kind of talk about some of these overlaps and places where World War One is truly setting the stage for what's going to happen in the rest of the 20th century in a big way. We can do that right now. Let's do that. Let's break that down. So it inspires an entire generation of American leadership. There's no debate and doubt about this. FDR, Truman, MacArthur, Eisenhower, even Herbert Hoover, Patton, they all... Hap Arnold, Chester Nimitz, all, all of these very important World War II military leaders cut their teeth in World War I. My favorite thing is in September 1918, where MacArthur and Patton met for the first time on a battlefield in Germany. And it's like, we don't know what they said, but we know that they basically crossed paths and had to have a conversation about who was going to go which direction. Right. And Patton basically invents the tank in the First World War and is then later going to perfect tank warfare in the next war. Um, FDR meets Churchill memorably. FDR remembers Churchill doesn't so much. Truman fights in the trenches. Hoover even. Herbert Hoover is in charge of relief to Belgium and the Netherlands during the war. There's a whole bunch chunk of time that all of our leadership and of course, there were all men back then, which is also kind of a thumbs down. Uh, they're all going to 
have a memory of this. This is the searing moment of their youth that sort of informs who they're all going to become uh, later on. It can't be overstated, I feel like, how much there's an entire generation of Americans that brings this to bear when they are leading the country. There's also going to be an incredible influence on the civil rights movement. We tend, I think, very much to focus on the civil rights movement as something that happens in the 1950s and 60s. But what happens with World War I? We have four million Americans that serve in uniform in that war. Almost half a million of them are black. So this is a huge percentage of the American fighting force. We touch on this in our Black History Month episode when we talk about the Harlem Hellfighters. These men are going to be thrown truly to the front lines. They're going to see a bulk of the action and they're going to come home thinking that perhaps America is going to treat them differently. And they're going to be sort of rudely confronted with the reality of that. You're going to have men back here at home who don't like seeing these men coming home in uniform. We have one of the bloodiest summers ever in terms of race riots following World War I the next year, the Red Summer. Twelve black World War I veterans are lynched in that summer alone. So we start to see very much that even putting on a uniform and going to the front and being willing to die for your country is not going to be enough to protect your life here in the United States. And that is going to be a huge catalyst for the people who will come to define the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. You also have one of Becca and my favorite topics ever. Prohibition comes right after the First World War. And it is because of the First World War, they pass an income tax bill. Suddenly the government can get money from taxes. And so there's going to be a lot of anti-German sentiment because we're fighting the Germans during the war. So that shuts a lot of beer brewers down and it sort of paves the way for prohibition. And it's also, World War I is the terrible trial. The 20s are like the rejoicing afterward. Like we've gone through the worst war in human history. And you have to remember, and this is the thing I talk about with World War I all the time, they didn't know we were gonna fight another one. And so for them, this is the worst thing that has ever happened. We're through it. So the 20s become a big party, like the stock market's booming and everybody's having a good time. And there's, we're awash in prohibition gin and everything's really great. So you see this sort of party after the, you know, kind of like when you take your finals and you want to celebrate the next day. That's kind of what the, a sort of elongated version of this is. And, you know, it is a party if you're a certain part of the American population. It's definitely not for others. We see a huge resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s. That's not accidental. We see a wave of anti-immigrant sentiment that comes immediately because of World War One. There's this fear of the other, of foreign influence. We talk about this in our DuPont Circle Tour, but we talk about Mitchell Palmer and the Palmer Raids. And we talk about using this war almost as a catalyst to increase things like government surveillance and invasions of privacy and essentially the creation of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So there is a great, absolutely big party. There's a huge cultural influence that comes from World War I, an entire generation of artists and creators and writers and musicians. But you also have very much on the other side of the scale, increasing, increasing tensions that are only going to get worse once we enter the Depression and we then lose that economic kind of boost. The other important thing for World War I, and we touched on this quite a bit last year when we did the centennial of the 19th Amendment, but this is a huge change for women. As in a kind of other wartime points, you have opportunities for women. We are a, an industrialized nation to the core by the time World War I starts. And when these 4 million men go off to fight, somebody has to keep 
the factories going. Somebody has to keep the industry of America going and women step in. So we have new roles for women. Women are going to go into sort of relief, nursing, war support in a way that eclipses even the civil war. And once women do all that, when they spend 18 months keeping this country going, it's really, really hard to then say, you don't get a vote. And I think it's one of the most important influences in finally getting that federal amendment is World War I gives women an opportunity and puts them in a place in society where then it becomes very hard to say, you can't have that full right of citizenship. Right. Yes. I feel like it's a, a war that's understudied in the United States. Somebody said this to me once that we feel about World War II in the United States, the way that Europeans feel about World War One. Mm, so for them, it's kind of the opposite. World War One is the big trial, and World War Two is kind of this thing that happened afterward. And to wit, we have a friend, Matilda, who is probably listening. Hi, Matilda. And she moved to and a she's small. She's fabulous and wonderful. She is fabulous, and wonderful. Uh, she moved to a teeny tiny town in the middle of nowhere, France, for a little while. And there's like a hundred people that live there. And on Armistice Day, which is the end of the war, November 11th. They all get together and day drink because France and they read out the names of all of the people from their village that died in the war. And again, it's a teeny village. There are probably like five names. They've been dead a hundred years at this point. No one knows them. No one knows anyone who knew them, but they still do it in every town in France and every town in England. Like this is a big deal that they, they talk about this. Even in Normandy, where the United States, the British and the Canadians invaded during the Second World War, the focus in a lot of these towns is like, yeah, 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 World War II, but like World War I, they're our heroes. And so it's kind of very much the opposite effect. Uh, we sort of venerate the World War II veterans in a very real way that that's our glorious war, whereas World War I for the Europeans is going to be much more present even now for them. And the other thing, and this is one of the things that I was really nervous about with this World War I memorial, is that we're taught in school that the U.S. saved the world in World War I. Are you to tell me that is not the case, Rebecca? It is actually not, no. Um, the idea that we get is that, you know, Europe, Europe just couldn't get it done. They fought to a stalemate. They didn't really do much. And they just kind of killed each other for a while. And then they obviously needed us to come in and regulate. And that's what we did. And I have mentioned this to European guests as we tour around Washington and they are insulted by this. And I'm like, yeah, I'd be insulted if I were you too. Like that is insulting, it's incorrect. World War I, for us, we're in it a relatively short amount of time, particularly given the number of casualties that we had actually. And we do sort of provide, we put our foot on the scale and help with the victory, but we are not like, it isn't like we gladiated in and like saved the day. The whole war up to this point and the millions, literally millions of guys who died before the United States gets involved in the war is also incredibly fascinating and worth a lot of study. I wanted to also mention that we see the first world war as a prelude to the second world war. That's also unfair. It's a completely separate conflict. They didn't know there was going to be another one. And a lot of the things that happened in World War II sort of overshadow World War I in terms of like, we have a bad feeling about Germany in World War I because of what happens, what they do in World War II. And that's not fair. Like they did do terrible things in World War II. That's true. And some terrible things in World War I in Belgium for in particular. Yes, yes, <laughs> that's true. But it's not... Two, it's two very different circumstances. Right. So that is also worth mentioning. 
And the war is going to establish the United States on the world stage. That's another thing that's important to remember. We were not, we were just becoming a global power uh, when the war breaks out. We, at this point, become a lender nation. Like, as the European powers descend into war, they're going to need money. They have a lot of money, particularly the British, because they have basically the entire rest of the world as their overseas dominions. But... They start running out of money about two years into this thing, and they start saying, hey, the U.S., can you lend us some cash? We're totally good for it. We'll pay you back. Okay, promise. Thanks. Bye. And we do. Um, And so we become a big lender nation. It establishes the United States as a diplomatic power to be reckoned with, particularly Wilson, like Wilson is the first president of the United States to leave the United States, sails across the ocean and sort of helps out and and is an equal partner in the peace conference at the end of the war. So this is going to establish the United States as a player uh, on the world stage in a way that we had not been before. This also, I think we tend to think of the United States, like you said, sort of swooping in the heroes to save the day as though we had this massive military force ready to go, which is not the case. We have at the point that World War I is happening, we have an army and a navy. They are not battle ready. They are not combat on the scale ready. And to be fair, how could anyone be ready for what the Great War brings upon us? It's an entirely different kind of warfare. The way in which technology has changed and advanced the war, um, many people have written about this more eloquently than I could ever sum it up here. But we have this idea that like we were ready. World War I forces forces us to really grow our military force. And that's going to be huge when it does come around to World War II, because we sort of learn a lesson about having military preparedness and not wanting to be in the back of the pack when it comes to military development, something very much the United States still embraces today, right? In terms of keeping a large active military presence and military preparedness. Um, So I think it's just important to note that as Wilson sort of balancing this neutrality with this, this reality of the fact that we're probably going to enter this war. And Wilson, it'll be a year. It's sort of a year of trying to convince people that we need to get involved. Um, I think a lot of times, and this is true myself, I think as a student, it's like the Lusitania is sunk and America was like outraged and we joined immediately, but it takes some time. And we had to take that time because we had to get battle ready. Let's break that down a little bit, actually. I wanted to talk about Wilson getting us in the war. So the war starts in the summer of 1914, very memorably. uh, And it actually starts in an incredibly short amount of time, six weeks, and basically all of Europe is consumed with this war. And the United States, like across the ocean, is like, whoa, we don't want any part of that. And we're, in 1914, let me just say, we're a huge melting pot country. So... I mean, we've had this huge wave of immigration for the last 20, 30 years leading up to this. And so it's like, well, they're all fighting, but we happen to have people from all these countries living here. And so it's really hard for us to just pick a side at the get-go. And Wilson is an Anglophile. He's very British-focused, and he sort of, his instinct is to help the British 
But that's going to be sort of stopped by a number of things. First of all, there are a lot of German immigrants in this country. They're still at this time. There's a lot of people with German ancestry. It's the, I think the second highest grouping after the British uh, at this time in the United States. It's the second most spoken language in the United States after English. There are a lot of people with German connection. There's also a lot of Irish immigrants in the United States at this time, particularly recent ones who have no great love for the British, for reasons we're not going to go into. They just don't. And so they're not really keen on the idea that we're going to get involved to support the British and the French. Now, there are people that don't like this. We have a lot of recent immigrants, particularly Jewish immigrants from Russia. And first of all, like they're not particularly kind to a lot of people. And second of all, they're really autocratic. Like they have a czar at this point still. And that's the basically the opposite of democracy, and we're a democracy. So we don't want to get involved with that either. Uh, so we don't want to like put the stamp of approval on the czar because we don't approve of the czar. He's kind of not nice to people. And so that's part of what's going to slow Wilson down too. And I feel like Wilson, unlike FDR, I don't really think Wilson wanted to get us involved in this war. I think it, when it came time to, he was ready and he was there. But like FDR, you get the sense that he's pushing for it. Wilson was lending aid. He was sending over food. He clearly had a preferred side, but I think he would have rather kept us out if he could have. I think he had a preferred role too for the United States, which is we can garner ourselves as an important power by providing material aid and stay out. I do think as we're leading up to, I think those like months leading up to, he sort of changes his tune a bit, but I, I agree with you. I think especially when we're talking about 1914, 1915, 1916, I think he's very much like this is our lane and this is what we're best at and we shouldn't leave it. Um, we should use this opportunity to provide aid and support, but we should be mindful of who the United States is. And this is not just, well, it's a widespread feeling in the United States that we should be isolationists. This is overwhelmingly popular opinion. Yes. As much as people want to send support as they did, and there were plenty of groups that were trying to help children and during this time and refugees during this time, but it was pretty much uh, we don't want to get involved. America first, we think of it as being a World War II sort of phenomenon, and it was. See our Charles Lindbergh episode. But it also was very prevalent in the First World War II. We don't really want to get involved in what's going on over there. There's a lot of messiness happening and we're not into it. And the sort of through line that we're taught is the war starts. We send aid and comfort. The Lusitania sinks. There's the Zimmerman telegram. And then we're involved. And that is sort of true, but very compressed. The Lusitania happens in 1915. It's sunk by a German U-boat. We will do a whole pot on that at some point because Lusitania is... Please read Eric Larson's Dead Wake. This will be the second week in a row we're going to shout out Eric Larson. Yeah. <laughs> please, please come on our yeah. podcast. Then there's the Zimmerman telegram, which is also fascinating. I've actually seen the original Zimmerman telegram. It is at the National Archives. Ooh. True story. So the Zimmerman telegram is, I think, really interesting. The German government reaches out to the government of Mexico and says, hey, so... There's some territory down there. We're not really familiar with U.S. geography, but we're pretty sure that some of their territory used to be your territory and you should want it back. And if you like start a rumble, keep the United States occupied so they don't get involved in what's going on in Europe, we will be very happy and we will make sure that you take all that territory when the war is over. And that gets leaked to the United States. 
and because the Mexican government was like, well, we don't want any piece of this. This is bad news bears. And uh, yeah, it's going to get leaked to the United States. And we are less than thrilled about this. But I think for me, when I think about World War One, the real like impetus for us getting involved is actually going to be the fall of the, the Tsar in Russia. So Wilson runs in 1916 for re-election on the idea that he kept us out of the war. He wins a very narrow victory. And in between the time that he, the election happens and when he's sworn in a few months later, because at that time they're sworn in in March, the whole world changes. Literally, the Russian Empire falls apart. This is a pretty big shift. It's a, I, We could do many episodes on this, but the Russian Revolution is going to be a big element in all of it this. It is a huge element in all this, and I feel like so much of our scholarship about this is informed by the Cold War, because we don't really like Russia at that point. They become the Soviet Union, and so we sort of forget their importance. They had the entire other side of this conflict. Germany's fighting a two-front war. Suddenly, the Russians have this revolution. They have a new government, and the new government doesn't want to fight this war anymore, and they sign a humiliating peace treaty with the Germans. So suddenly, the Germans are like, whoa, we got all these men. We just need to truck them across Europe and get them to the front with the English and the French. So the picture is very different at this point than it was two to three years prior. And the Germans are like, all right, we're just going to put all our chips in, literally, like gambling. We're going to put all our troops in, and we're going to have this last-ditch assault, and it's going to be a big thing. And this is when the United States decides to get involved in the war. This is kind of when we've decided we've had enough. The Russians are out. We don't have that. We're not defending autocracy anymore. In fact, we're fighting the German Kaiser and the Austrian emperor. So we are joining with two other democracies in sort of fighting the sort of authoritarian forces in Europe. So this is when uh, less than a month after he's sworn in for his second term, Wilson is going to go to, co- to Congress on April 2nd and say, hi, I want a declaration of war. And so he keeps us out of the war for his first term and then immediately gets us right into the war uh, as soon as he's sworn in for his second term. And I do think it's important to note, as you were saying earlier, it's not that we swoop in and we're the superheroes and, and all it took was a few good American men to win this thing. But I think there's something to be said for bringing in reinforcements when they were badly needed. And there is a psychological impact of that. You do have millions of Americans flooding over, troops coming to the front lines. And after just the slog of trench warfare for the French and the British to have this influx of American fighting force, it does matter. It's it, it really is like you're in the final quarter. I'm not good at sports analogies, but you get a fresh you get your whole fresh team out for that final rush. That's that kind of worked. Thank you. That was football. Yep. I liken it to a blood transfusion. Yes, a blood transfusion makes more sense. Like suddenly you got fresh fresh blood coming in and like you're fighting alongside the older this is falling apart quickly, the older blood. Um, but you, the fresh blood is sort of invigorating. Neither sports nor science metaphors work for us, but you guys understand yeah, well, what we're trying to say. You see what we're laying down. <laughs> and Germany loses this whole gamble. They've pushed all their chips in and they lose the gamble. And they have an internal revolution and can't sustain the war anymore. And so the idea that the United States heroes up and saves the day is incorrect. But also we do provide a decisive decision point in the final analysis of the war. And it's also like, it doesn't happen overnight either. We're there for about a year. We lose a hundred thousand casualties. Yeah. And like a year and a half, you know, it's, it's It's a a lot. lot. 
And we're putting men on the front at a rate of 10,000 yeah. a day. And so you've got these fresh faced, you know, I think of like somebody like Truman from the Midwest who hadn't really been very far afield. And now all of a sudden here you are in this other country. I think about the Harlem Hellfighters who were trained essentially as National Guard. And then it's like, okay, here you go. Here's a rifle, which by the way, we didn't give you to train with. Uh, good luck out on the front. Right. Be cannon fodder. Have fun. So it's a huge, huge shift um, for the American forces. I also do want to mention how quickly our government mobilizes back at home, because I think today, with with reason, we often joke about how bloated the government is, how tied up in bureaucracy we are. But when we do enter this war, even though we wait, so we don't wait, wait is not the right phrase, but it takes us so long to get into the war. When we do this is coming off the edge of like that progressive era. We've talked about this a lot in recent weeks on the podcast about all of these progressive movements that are sort of thriving at the beginning of the 20th century. And efficiency is important. Expertise is important. Putting government resources to work is important. There are going to be temporary agencies popping up left and right. There are going to be aid groups popping up left and right. There's upwards of almost a million new government employees that are mobilized to support this war. And that is massive. If you think that we sent 4 million men in uniform and we put another million to work back at home, new employees back to work at home, that's an incredible deployment of United States power. And I think it is going to set us up for having a brand new conception of what the federal government can do. And that's going to be big when we get to World War II. Absolutely. And I feel like the person who sees this happen at the micro level is Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who's assistant secretary of the Navy. And he watches this in real time because Franklin Roosevelt at this point is a little too old for fighting. Not that he didn't try. He did try to resign. <laughs> <laughs> you were going to say that, weren't you? <laughs> he did. He wanted to fight. But he, um, but he was a little too, you know, senior at that point. And he's going to watch this firsthand and he's going to see what, first of all, what the American public can do when properly motivated. And second of all, what the government can do and how government can be a force for good and the expansion yes. of the government. And I think he kind of gets some ideas about this that's really going to inform what he does uh, in the next war. Absolutely. The world, First World War in America sets, in my opinion, sets the stage for the entire rest of the American century. This is going to literally set us up for everything that comes after this and informs how the leaders lead and the civil rights movement and the progressive movement, how all of this sort of unfolds over the next 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, even till the present day, really. Um, so I feel like World War I is long overdue for some sort of dis some discussions. It's a really fascinating era. And I'm really excited that we're going to finally have a memorial to the veterans for the First World War. I am very excited. And honestly, us just having this conversation, I've already thought of like five topics I hope we'll cover in the future, things that I want us to go more in depth on, things we've barely touched on. But I hope for those listening, this will at least cast World War One and maybe a new light for you or have you thinking about it in a different way. Uh, and I, I hope that if you're newer to the podcast, if you go back and listen to some of our other episodes, you're going to see where that influence comes. We are probably going going to do a small like patron bonus episode when the World War One Memorial does open to the public. I bet we'll do a video so that you can see what it actually looks like. So if you aren't a patron, you're going to want to become one because that's the kind of extra behind the scenes bonus stuff you'll get. But um, my plan is definitely to go down shortly after it opens. I would love to go to the dedication because Gary Sinise will be there. 
who I just think is truly one of one of the great humans in the world. Gary Sinise, um, if you don't know, incredible actor, but also has pretty much dedicated his life to helping military families and veterans um, and has raised millions and millions of dollars and has been given a bajillion important honorary positions in every branch for his dedication to serving um, our men and women in uniform. So Gary, if you listen to the podcast, big fan, love your work. <laughs> So that's the World War One Memorial. And it's really great. And there's like, I literally, we're going to have to write down the 10 things that we want to talk about after this, because there's so many th- different ideas I have. As always, please reach out to us. We love to hear from our listeners. If you have ideas, if this has sparked an idea in you of some World War One related topic that you want to hear about, let us know and we will put it on the schedule. Uh, we love to do uh, what our list, talk about what our listeners want to hear about. That always comes to the front of our topic list. So let us know. You can find us on the internets. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Tour Guide Tell All. We're on the Twitters at Tour Guide Tell. You can email us, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. We love to hear from people and we love our Patreon subscribers even more. So please become a subscriber. We can talk about First Ladies. You'll hear about the World War I Memorial. We'll do a, a little tour of it for our subscribers once it's finally open. So we love them the most. And that's World War I. That's it. We did it in like 45 minutes, Becca. I have one final question, which is, do you have anybody in your family who served in World War One? Because I feel like World War Two, everybody sort of is like, yeah, I got a grandfather or a great uncle or someone. So I do. It's my grandmother's uncle, I believe. There's a picture of him in my father's house. And he, I think, dies over there. Oh. Um, I don't know much more about him than that. But yeah, World War One is uh, neither of my, none of my great great grandparent none of my great grandparents served they would have been about the right age my great grandfather served in world war one he was really young he lied about his age like a lot of guys did back then so he's 16 and he lies um and he eventually becomes a master sergeant but then when world war ii comes around he's in his like 40s late 40s <laughs> but he wants to serve he stays stateside during world war ii but he serves again and i always sort of think about him when i think about world war one that there were men of that generation. We talk a lot about sort of the World War II, Korea, Vietnam sort of triad. And there were certainly plenty of men who sort of find themselves in two out of three, if not all three of those conflicts. But there were also, there was also a generation of sort of World War One and World War II. Um, and you, and ex- at least in my family, you have my great grandfather, World War One and World War II, and then my grandfather who served in World War II. So they, father and son serving together. Um, my great grandfather's also buried at Arlington, but I always think about that, like that we we tend to sometimes think two separate generations, but there was a whole generation like Franklin D. Roosevelt or Truman. These are good examples of men where they're going to live through both of these and experience both of these, and it's going to shape their worldview and shape our country. So I'm always curious because we talk a lot, we, the general public, about sort of our World War II connections a lot, but I think a lot of people don't think back to do they have that World War I connection. Yeah, that's a really good point. You never hear people talk about like their great grandfather served or in the First World War. That's and I think really that directly point. influences why it takes so long for the memorial, a memorial at all, really, yeah. in D.C. to happen. Mm-hmm. This was a great episode. I'm really looking forward to next week. We're going to talk about some West Coast history. We don't go out West very often on this podcast. I have so many Western like thoughts that I want to do, like a whole Western. I have a bunch Yeehaw. of Western topics. I'm ready. Yes. Yeah, And then we're going to round out April with one of my favorite, scandalous, interesting, incredible women, 
And so we've got a lot of really good stuff coming up in April. So we're looking forward to sharing it with you guys. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye. I'm your host, Candon Arseniega. Dan King and I do the intros, the editing, the admin. Becca Grawl and Rebecca Fackner do the research and the talking. We are all guides for free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. This is Tour Guide Tell All. Until next time. Bye.